Hey everyone. For season two, we're happy to say that we've partnered with the therapist who created Medify. Medify is an app that helps document your emotional and bodily experience. I've been using it and it's super easy to use and really helpful. For example, I know from the analytics that I happen to document a level three anxiety and tension feeling in my neck whenever I engage with social media. So I should probably do something about that. This app is so simple and specific at the same time. Medify, M-E-T-A-F-I, is a free download for Android and iOS. So go get it today and begin to be your best self. That's the periodic table of elements. I I can date my introduction to science by that. It's wonderful, really. It's not... It's, it's the universe at its essence. You see, you have your alkali metals, you, you have your halogens, your inert gases. Every element has its place in that order. You can't change that. They're secure, no matter what. You're not married? Me? No. I'm not very good with people. I never have been, Leonard. I like them. I I wish I could say I had more than a rudimentary understanding of them. Maybe if they were less unpredictable. Eleanor would disagree with you. Eleanor? Miss Costello. spoken to you about me? What did she say? That you are a kind man, that you care very much for people. My therapist slash psychoanalyst severe and devastating stroke and I never thought I would see her again and then as I was at least poems just started pouring out of me thinking about time that we had together and that time started when I was 26 years old I'm almost 70 How do we think about termination? Therapy is a unique relationship and that we often end relationships forever in a positive way. To me, that seems really rare. In a world of insurance battles and income equality, there is this nagging voice in our head that we have to end therapy at some point. It can't go on forever. But is that necessarily true? Well, you're not going to get an unbiased report from me. I make no secrets that I have been a practitioner and a patient of therapy for over seven years and counting. But all things are fleeting, and sometimes our therapists cannot continue with us. This is what happened to poet and biographer Molly Peacock. Nearly 40 years into her analytic relationship, her therapist had a career-ending stroke. 
But even then, this did not end the relationship for her and her therapist, Joan. It only changed the nature of it. In her new collection of poetry called The Analysts, Molly explores the history of this relationship from her encounter of Joan at the age of 26 to their post-analytic relationship in which Molly often took on a kind of caretaking role for Joan, but in a new way that her psychotherapy enabled her to engage in. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker and The Paris Review, and she was nice enough to stop by and talk with me on her recent book tour. I was the first person in my family to go to college. I didn't have any models for somehow being out out in the world as an artist. And Joan Stein, who was the um, therapist and the analyst I saw, did. She had a, a totally different sense of the world than I did, and I knew that I needed it. So I went off to graduate school. Therapy was over, I thought. <laughs> and then you know, time passed, and I ended up in New York City uh, with, so, with more crises. And she had come to New York City and, and taken analytic tra- training and begun a private practice there. And so I began seeing her there. And that's when, thanks to the Quaker school I taught at, which gave me a very poor salary but a very great insurance uh, <laughs> package, allowed me to go several times a week for a number of years and do the kind of investigation that in retrospect feels as shapely as a poem to me, even though at the time it just felt formless and weeping on the couch and I didn't know what to do and full of emotions and full of anger and, you know, the whole palette of emotions. I mean, if you're going to compare it to painting, it's just every possible color is there. You know, in retrospect, it has a shape. Mm Mm-hmm. At the time, you think that you're going for a thing that is totally different than what you see in retrospect. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I guess there's something called the presenting problem. You know? right. <laughs> um, so you go and you present. That's like starting a poem, too, where eventually you throw out the first few lines. That really wasn't the poem. That wasn't the heart of it. Mm-hmm. As it proceeds, it surprises you. What was it like for you to come back from, it was graduate school, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And reunite with Joan. I slipped right back into the relationship. And there was a certain amount of excitement because she had moved to New York. After her stroke, I learned a lot of information about her that I didn't know at the time. I'm going to tell you a little story about her that makes me understand now how we reconnected again so easily. Hmm. When she was 17, her father died. She was very bright, and she had been taking private art lessons. Her family had signed her up, but with an adult group. So she's a kid, but with all, you know, with mature painters. Mm -hmm. And this neighbor said, well, let me help this talented girl try to get into Harvard. So she does. And it's maybe 1953, 
So just kind of imagine that atmosphere, 17-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. Dean sends her down the street to study with a diehard abstractionist painter who, like, teaches painting by the T-square. This is not a guy who's going to tolerate what she wants to do in her class, which is draw and paint images of her father. Hmm. And so comes the first critique. He, uh, according to her, it was an excoriating critique. Hmm. And she turned on her heel, left the class, never went back. But when she took analytic training and went, was in New York, she was just beginning to think about picking up the brush again. And I was in New York to claim myself as a baby poet. And those energies were connecting. Now, I didn't know that at the time. Patients don't know about their therapist's lives, you know, although they think about them. I thought about it. But that energy just glued us together. So we kind of know about how you started with Joan, yeah. and we, we know about how it ended. Yes. When you were in the middle of it, I yeah. mean, what was there a sense when you hit the 10-year mark with Joan, the 15-year mark? The, you know, I mean, was there, a, was there a conversation that was about your relationship? Yes and no. Because at the very beginning, I said to her, I don't want to know anything about you. I didn't want to know anything because I, I said to her then, I said, I, I can't feel like I have to take care of you. Hmm. I'm here to be taken care of. That's why I was there, just to have this sense that there was somebody who had my back and who was, was taking care of me. So I really resisted knowing anything, even though I had those curiosities. This wasn't a straight 38 years. I'd kind of graduate myself periodically. So after certainly the 10-year mark, well, the 10-year mark, I would have been 36. So let's say that it was the first time, you know, I'm 26 to 30, and then maybe I come back when I'm 34 to 45, and that's the heart of it. That's the big part of it. But I, I kind of leave 34 to 40, and I feel like, okay, I have a grip, I'm going out there, etc. I could read a little part of a poem that sort of talks about that. Sure. This is a poem called The Pottery Jar, and it's about a time of huge anger in, in therapy with gratitude. Thank you for asking me not to smoke. Thank you for the extra 10 minutes, no charge. Thank you for not condescending to that Navy man, my father, who had such bad Depression-era karma. He secured the soles of his shoes with rubber bands. And the farm girl, my mother, who leapt from reading books behind the barn into her book of life. Chapter 2, Post-War, in which the wounded Navy boy threw his farm girl down the cellar stairs. Thank you for your posture. Bolt upright when I was so mad I declared I could break the antique pottery jar on your shelf. 
After I declared I'd break the gray jar with navy blue patterns, after your posture bolt upright in your chair, you said, You will not! What if the farm girl on the cellar stairs had shouted, You will not! That was a moment that we both remembered, you know, when I leapt off the couch and actually was going to act out my father breaking the legs off the kitchen table, except I was going to smash this jar. My father, the Navy man, there's the Navy blue patterns on the jar, all of this happening, and she stands up and says, you will not. And to me, that's not the same situation as the calm Anella sand on the couch describing a dream and the analyst taking notes behind. It was that surge of violence and anger in me that leaps up and then her actual physical response and just hearing that you will not. So many things and we're all circulating around funneled into me, and I sat down and understood something deeply about my own anger and my own situation. And I would say that that was probably 38 before stuff like that starts to happen. And that, in, at least in reflecting on it, I yeah. don't know if it was in the moment, but there's a thought of what if, what if her self-preservational could uh, qualities could be my self-preservational yes, qualities. exactly, exactly. And it was the actual modeling of that. Mm. In talk therapy, it's the words that, that take the shape. But right there, there was an actual physical modeling. For me, that was incredibly important. I mean, my whole life is words and shaping words. I'm so grateful that... I, I have a gift to do that. I don't know how people process their lives without making something. And I also think around that time, that's when I began noticing watercolors appearing on her walls. So you said that you didn't want to know the data of her life. I didn't. But was there a sense for you that you got her? I, f- I did feel I got her. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she didn't feel mysterious to me, but she felt... I, I felt that I was with somebody who had a really recognizable, defined emotional core. And she would talk about my emotional core, and I wouldn't get it. I didn't feel like I had a core. I didn't. I have a. I have a. I have a metaphor for for what I felt like. I felt like a pail. I had a really well developed outside, mm-hmm. but I was always. I was the person in my family who who was responsible for everything. When I was 12, I was cooking dinner for my father and sister while my mother was at work. I was ironing my father's shirts. I was supervising my sister's homework, doing all of that stuff, looking like 
I was capable of it because I had this really well-defined outer. I was like a container. Somebody performing the role of wife and mother, not not in a sexual sense, but in in a, I don't know, wearing a horrible adult cloak, like this heavy, thick, wet wool cloak of adulthood. <laughs> Thank you for addressing me as honey. Thank you for carrying me when I had no money. Thank you for waving goodbye as that young woman set off to cohabit with a man who wore a bathrobe till five in the afternoon and smelled of Balkan sobranis. And thank you for the welcome back. Thank you for your applause as she changed the locks and the password to the bank account. For now, she had a bank account. I would get to these places, leave, and feel self-possessed and that sense of the core and then something would happen or I would make something happen that would recreate some aspect of my own childhood situation and I would find myself trapped in a caretaking role you know so now I'm taking care of this fellow, you know, who's wearing his bathrobe till five o'clock in the afternoon. Uh-oh, no. <laughs> you can't pay all the bills. You cannot support this person. You ha- you know, you're back wearing the wet wool cloak of adulthood. This is crazy. You can't do this. And, I, and I'd go back. Leonard Shingold. That is the name of the psychotherapist in New York who, according to the internet, is 91 years old and who treated the renowned neurologist Oliver Sacks for 50 years before Sacks passed away in 2015. Molly described her own relationship with Joan as Oliver Saxian. Oliver Sacks was one of the most respected brain scientists of our time because he combined science and humanism in a way that was game-changing. He believed that every patient of his had a story to tell. But as a young man, Oliver Sacks' own story was a difficult one. As a child in London, he and his schizophrenic brother were sent away to escape the bombings of World War II. They went away to a boarding school where they were abused by their headmaster. When Oliver was 18, he told his father that he had same-sex attraction. When his father told his mother, she said to him, You are an abomination. I wish you had never been born. Sachs later wrote, Her words haunted me for much of my life and played a major part in inhibiting and injecting with guilt what should have been a free and joyous expression of sexuality. The sufferer of extreme anxiety, Sachs spent the vast majority of his life in the closet and at one stretch was celibate for 30 years. I'm in my early 40s after the guy in the bathrobe, (laughs) and I reconnected because of a review in the New York Times, and I had no idea at the time how lucky it is for for this little poet to have a review of a book in the New York Times. It just doesn't happen that often. 
But my high school boyfriend read the review. He was in Canada. He had become a Joyce Scholar. Uh, we hadn't spoken in 19 years, but he was in therapy. And we reconnected. We'd call each other periodically because mm-hmm. we'd say, do you remember when my parents did blah, blah, blah? Because we, we knew each other's families. Right. We had this adult friendship over six or seven years. And when I'm 45, at that point, he said, you know, why don't you come up and visit me here in Canada? I said, well, maybe I could come for a couple of days. I'm not so sure. I was very reluctant. And then when I got off the plane, I realized, geez, I mean, talk about getting in at the shallow end of the pool. You got into the, you met this person when you were 16 years old, and you had these incredible, you know, this just this incredibly long history with this person. And by the time we threw our arms around each other in the airport, I thought, this is it. This is the turn. I'm gonna make. I'm gonna make the turn. And in a sonnet. There's a turn. Hmm. There's a sonnet's only 14 lines. And you get to this place, like you're writing the sonnet. You're going, okay, you know, da-da-da-da-da, line four goes by, line six, line eight. You get to line eight or line nine, and you're looking down, and line 14 is coming up. And you have to get there. You don't, it's all you've got. It's like a now or never moment. You don't have to force the turn when you make us on it. It just happens because you feel all of the pressure of the now or never moment, and a change has to be made. And I go into therapy, and I say, I think I'm going to get married. After becoming a doctor and moving to California in the 60s, Oliver Sacks developed an amphetamine habit. He told an interviewer that in 1965, he had a sober moment on New Year's Eve. He eventually ended up in New York and in the office of Dr. Shingold in 1966. He said that he knew he was in deep trouble. That relationship lasted until Sachs died in 2015. He liked to talk about it as the longest running analysis on record. He said that they grew old together They went through life stages together, and they always referred to each other as Dr. Shingold and Dr. Sachs. Sachs credited Shingold with teaching him to listen with a third ear, to listen to what is behind the babble. And in 2011, Oliver Sachs said of his relationship with Shingold, I think we're beginning to get somewhere. It is no doubt that they were. When his memoir was released just before his death in 2015, it was revealed that he had been in a partnership with author Bill Hayes for the last six years. His first ever long-term relationship. He wrote, It has sometimes seemed to me that I have lived at a certain distance from life. This changed when Billy and I fell in love. Would you have been able to make that turn without Joan? No, I don't think I would have. I really don't. I'm someone who's very in touch with my emotions, but 
at the same time, I'm totally inside them. It takes somebody else around me to be that, oh, it's so corny to say sounding board or responder or recognizer. Or what about container? What you were doing for your family. Or container, yeah, yes. A holder, you know, like a holding area. Mm-hmm. And I, and this, I wondered in this conversation when something would happen that would bring me to tears, and it's now. Mm. It's the that's the container, mm-hmm. and and she was able she was able to do that. Mm-hmm. My whole life, I've I've had to explain to people how to write these technical uh, forms and poetry, and I'm always saying to people. Don't think of a form as the outside of something. You know, because people think, oh, it's like you fill in the sonnet. And and I keep saying, don't think of it that way. Think of it as a skeleton. Think of a form as the interior that you build the body around. And when you said container, there is that, you know, there's that, that paradox of therapy where, yes, she was the holding area, but I somehow developed the skeleton. I could stand up. I could walk. I wasn't like an amorphous blob anymore. And and it's that I could stand up and I could walk to the great north, you know, and get married and have a different life. Perhaps most importantly, not leave therapy. We had then the sort of great third phase, which is a phone relationship. I thought, oh, give it up, find a therapist in Canada. I thought, I can't do that. I knew that my husband had long-term cancer. My husband had already had a couple of melanoma um, recurrences. Uh, Nine recurrences later, he's still at the gym writing a book, and all this stuff. But I'm in, I'm in that caretaker role. He's a, well, I don't know, 35-year cancer survivor who has a really uh, admirable way of dealing with all of this. But when these recurrences come, come about, I need backup. That's why I kept the kept up the phone call relationship. Months would go by. Long periods of time. I mean, I didn't need that. But then there would just be those moments, and I and I'd need that voice. I'd need that holding, that holding area, that container, because I'm the one in my marriage who has all the emotions. And that's why I didn't go to somebody else. So that, that's how this relationship sort of elongated and got more fluid, went into other stages. At this point, I'm in my 50s. She's in her late 60s, early 70s. I mean, it goes on. It's interesting to think about it. You compared that turn to a sonnet. Yeah. Because we talk about, at least the way I do therapy, we talk about relational schemas. 
Oh, and, yeah. And being open to new relational schemes. Yes, yeah. And it's it's almost like she, you were open to new schemes. Yes, yes, absolutely. Because of your relationship with Joan. It was like you maybe for the first time experienced a relationship in which you weren't on Ooh. the hook yes. in order to experience love. Yes, I was, I was not on the hook in order to experience love. That's absolutely true. And so when your future husband came around, yeah. you were... Oh, you were open to it. No, I, I, I absolutely was. So uh, around 2007, as I'm trying to write this biography, I call her and I say, can we have a few such, not more than a few, probably went on for maybe three, four months, mm-hmm. kind of once a week, for, for 90 minutes, because I could never get anything done in 45. <laughs> I am like, <laughs> and so we would book these double sessions. Toward the end of that, I got to this place where I thought, I can know about her life. Because earlier as a poet, I was writing about my life. But when you write a memoir, suddenly you're in a historical context. Mm-hmm. And, and a different kind of perspective goes in. And I'm married to a scholar. So I, I watch him. I've watched him all my life do this kind of fact-searching, clue-searching, which has a little bit of a quality of, of therapy. When I called my new book of poems, The Analyst, I realized the poet's the analyst. And, of course, in the book, the therapist is the analyst. Mm-hmm. All that's going on. So during this... These, this um, the series of phone calls, I decided I would I would ask her some questions, and I wrote some things down, and I want to read one in her voice because she could not articulate this now. If I wrote about my work, what I'd write about is how the classical Freudian psychoanalysis leads toward termination, towards cleaning up all the little issues. But in fact, many therapists now see patients for decades. Termination is no longer thought to be something that must come to an end, as if it were a course of penicillin. The fear used to be that if you hold on to patients, they will have an unhealthy dependence that reflects the therapist's own pathology. However, if you work with people who are creatively reinventing themselves, then the therapy is inventive. You don't have to give it up like smoking or alcohol. Instead, it increases the likelihood that things will work out. I have the absolute conviction that it's a creative process that it isn't pathological, not even a smidgen. And in 2012, she had her stroke. My big challenge now to feel too responsible for that because she had a huge memory blast and and much she didn't remember but we went back so far she called me 
in this halting voice. I hear that on the answering machine. But I was devastated. I never thought I'd see her again. And I hear this voice. And I, rec- I mean, it's very recognizable. And, and she said, right in the message, I can't be your psychotherapist anymore. And then she said, I miss you hugely. She was remembering the 26-year-old me. I mean, it's a weird, it's a strange thing. I mean, it, it puts me, puts my 70-year-old self in touch with my 26-year-old me. Mm. And I, of course, went to see her, thinking, who are you now? I mean, what, what am I going to find? And I found somebody who can't read, who had to relearn how to, what a key was for. That you had used to put the key in the door and unlock the door. Somebody who's never going to use a cash machine, you know. But somebody who was taking her childhood, girlhood talent for painting. And now recreating her life with that flexibility you were just talking about by making watercolors and there she is her therapy room got turned into her art studio and there's something thrilling to me about being able to watch the person who every decision I made as a, as a writer kind of reclaim, kind of recreate, just kind of live through making art. Not making art to show in a gallery, but just making art to know that you're human and alive. And it's, this is a devastating experience to be with her. But at the same time, it's this invigorating experience. There's a part of me that wishes, like all of her other patients, I could walk away. You know, like, you know, it, that was over. They went on, they got other therapists, or they decided they were done, or what have you. My relationship goes on, but transformed. And it's caused me a lot, a lot of tears. But I wouldn't give it up. And I'm watching somebody live her endgame. And, you know, I'm not young. My endgame will come up. Everybody needs role models throughout their whole life. And you don't have that many role models for your endgame. When you get a role model like that, it comes with a lot of complications, a lot of complicated feelings. So it is the end of life. And... This is the cool thing about being old, that all of your reactions and your emotions are a tapestry. All these threads that, that have been weaving throughout your life are very present. It's like all of the colors of your responses and the layers of your responses are, are present for you. It is the richest, richest time of life. I have this richness of response, and I think, wow, if you just 
stick around long enough, these kinds of amazing things happen in an atmosphere of also losing them. Mm. But that's the turn, too. Mm. The turn requires losing things and requires understanding that things stop, that there's an ending. There's something really profound in that you... I keep coming back to that idea of not being on the hook to care for someone. You said your husband wasn't leaning into you. And it would have been fine for you to say your goodbye to Joan. Yep. And yet, when you weren't on the hook, there was something that opened you up to being able to care for others in a way that wasn't like being on the hook with your family. Ooh, what a... What a great insight! Thank you. It's that's really that. Yes, that's absolutely that's absolutely true, and it's a way I can respond because sometimes I think, oh, are you still in that place? You've just got to be this caretaker. I mean, did you ever give that up? I mean, what kind of a feminist are you? You can't even you can't even throw off these things. You know, then there's the that part of me that knows that these are rich experiences, and it is. It's true. It's not being on the hook. It's a totally new yeah. dynamic for you. It is. Absolutely it is. You're totally right. This was an emotional trip for Molly. You see, after a few years of recovery in New York, her therapist, Joan Stein, moved to a retirement community here in Seattle, where she has family. In the course of a few days, Molly gave a few readings in the Pacific Northwest, talked with me, and visited Joan for the first time in a year. And so what is your relationship with Joan like now? Is she still around? Oh, yeah. yeah. She's very much alive, and I saw her two days ago. Wow. And I was frightened. I hadn't seen her in over a year. I didn't know what I was going to find. I've been doing just fine on my own, and I thought, ooh, you're going to wake up all this stuff. But at the same time, I'm going to see her. And I came up out of the elevator, and she had come out of her room, and she was standing there with her arms wide open. And we had this big hug in the hallway. I mean, to have that elevator open and have your analyst with her arms wide open? I mean, who gets that? That's like, whoa. (laughs) In some ways, I came for my last time. I don't know whether I'll see her again. Hmm. It was a great goodbye if it was the end. And if it's just another chapter in the end, it was a good chapter, and I don't know. And if it is, lovely. Do you feel like therapist Joan, analyst Joan, which is still who she is, but do you feel like... that part of her is part of you. Now. Yes. I, oh, abs, ab, she's utterly internalized. But also, in writing the poems about her, I was able to externalize her. Hmm. So in our post-analytic relationship, because of her aphasia and because I, I didn't want to sit there talking to her in a therapy way. And I knew that she liked to be taken places. She liked to be taken to museums. We would go to a small museum 
And several of the poems in the book take place in these small museums. And the last poem in the book is called Mandala in the Making. And it takes place at the Asia Society in New York City. And I took her to see these three Tibetan monks make a sand painting. These sand paintings, they memorize the patterns. They blow colored sand through these brass funnels. And the patterns are really complicated. They're of architectural structures, of, of temples. The sort of unbelievable thing is that, of course, once they finish the painting, they brush it all away. So we go into this darkened room, that, and the monks are spotlit, and everyone is reverentially standing around. But one of the things that has happened after my therapist stroke is she doesn't have all of the normal social filters so she feels perfectly free to say something you know out loud at normal volume when she should be whispering <laughs> and she kind of does this we so we break the sacred space but the monks were fantastic and this is what this is the poem is about what happens hmm. mandala in the making Three Tibetan monks make a sand painting under spotlights in a reverential hush. The circular world before them, everything. A cosmos, a brain, a divine palace, lush with lotuses and pagodas in children's paint box colors. Excuse me, my friend is recovering from an accident. She's a, a, a painter. May we ask you some questions? Have I introduced you, my former analyst, as my painter friend? You point with your cane to the mandala in sand and ask, Three artists? How do they decide who does what? He's the boss, one monk points to the other. The boss beams above the bowls and brass funnel he wields like a wand. When they're done, they'll brush it all away. You can't believe it. Nothing stays, including the memory you've lost. What lasts? The pattern the monks have memorized. Their burnt-down temple returns as this circular core. Only when something's over can its shape materialize. Molly, thanks so much for stopping by and talking with me. Thank you so much for asking me. I really appreciate the opportunity. We're always grateful to our guests who are patients and who volunteer their vulnerability and their time to be with us on the show. Talking with Molly had me thinking about the connection between poetry and analysis, and really how I'm not equipped to talk about poetry. But one of my close friends, Paul Jossen, is a professor at Lawrence Technological University right outside Detroit, and I decided to call him up and ask him about that connection. Can you hear me, Paul? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can. I realize that I'm pretty ill-equipped to talk about poetry, and it got me thinking about the connection between 
poetry and psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. I I think that psychoanalysis is kind of an interpretive tool. Mm-hmm. Is that true? You're more of the expert in psychoanalysis than I am, but I would say that yeah, it's a it can be used not just to interpret subjects, you know, like in a clinical or therapeutic context, but also to interpret texts. When Floyd writes the interpretation of dreams, you know, he's not only tapping into interpretation as a kind of contemporary hermeneutic, but also a very, very old, like one of the oldest kind of hermeneutic pre-modern practices there is, right? You know, like the idea of the dream is having a kind of prophetic or, you know, magical power that needed to be parsed out. So when you when you are in the process of interpreting a poem, I mean, is, is Freud one of the voices that comes out? I mean, is, is that one of the lenses through which you interpret? Sometimes. I think it depends on the kind of poem that I'm reading. So sometimes it's like reading the poem as, an expression of the unconscious of the poets, or maybe thinking about the poet's biographical circumstances as it might be coming out in the poem. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, though, as you asked the question, that you know, that the other interesting thing about psychoanalysis and poetry is that the Freudian model has been used in a number of different ways. So, for example, there's a sequence of poems that I'm somewhat familiar with by John Berryman called Dream Songs where he literally kept a, a kind of dream journal and wrote poems about his dreams over the course of a period of time. I forget, I forget exactly how long he was doing that. And so that would have been clearly informed by, literally informed by psychoanalysis as a kind of therapeutic practices in like mid-20th century um, poetry, right around the time of the confessional movement, which was also really interested in kind of the poem as an expression of deep, dark secrets, as it were, or the poem as a kind of therapeutic space. I'm thinking of other artists. There seems to be a fear of psychoanalysis as if figuring out one's problems is going to stop the creative impulse. And what you're suggesting in, in terms of that movement and poetry would suggest that the, the thinking is different in that world. That like opening oneself up to the unconscious would provide more material. I mean... I'm surprised to hear that though. Do you, so you feel like you feel like yeah, there are other artists who would be afraid of the unconscious. The thinking is that if they heal the torturing, it will dry up the well or something like that. Okay. Well, let me step back because it's. I mean, one way to think about what you're saying is whether or not the creative process is itself a kind of therapy, or mm-hmm. whether or not it's. This like keeping open the the kind of pain or or uh, unconscious, unresolved question. Sure. And you'll hear artists talk about that. You know, like it was cathartic for me to write this particular thing, or this particular you know, working on this particular book helped me work through the loss of my father, or something like that. So I mean, you do hear that. You know, I'm wondering as you're talking if poetry is an art form that requires more access to the unconscious than other art forms, like pop music, for example. Maybe because poetry, even in its more formal um, moments, maybe because it's kind of open to more like metaphorical and metonymic kind of structures where you just kind of like ideas will link onto other ideas or words will link onto other words and, and we're kind of willing to let that movement happen. 
Because I, for one, am always fine with, like, folding pop music into poetry, like with the whole recent debate about Bob Dylan winning the Nobel Prize. It wasn't a debate for me. I had no problem with that. So there's this really, this essay by Lacan that has always influenced my thinking on this, where he calls it the instance of the letter in the unconscious for reasons in Freud. And he talks about how, like, the unconscious is itself a product of language. And he even says that, like, Freud figured that out in part by, like, listening to poetry. Um, which I think is pretty cool. So this idea that what we call the unconscious in Lacan's way of figuring it is itself the kind of process by which language exceeds its capacity to signify, right? Like there's always more in a word, in a phrase, in a sentence, if you're willing to hear it. Our thanks to our guest, Molly Peacock. Go and find her new book, The Analyst. We would also like to thank our sponsors for this season, Medify. Medify is the app that encourages connection between mind, body, and emotions. Go and download it for free today and begin to be your best self. Between Us is produced by myself and Mason Neely. Mason also composed our music. Find us on social media. Email us at betweenuspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, take care.